Hello, my name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're not talking about a single person. <sighs> Breaking format! <laughs> we're actually going to be talking about books. Film books, to be specific. Mm-hmm. Because me and Will, we love to read. We see ourselves as intellectuals. I, I consider myself a public intellectual, <laughs> because I have two podcasts. <laughs> and that... As readers, I've always found that the way that I find new books is either browsing the aisle of the library, looking for spines that catch my interest, or writing best film books and checking out whatever comes up. Yeah, and I find uh, it just pops up on Amazon and then I compulsively buy it. (laughs) And then it sits on a shelf collecting dust for a long time? Exactly. Or, you know, I go to BMV and I find a used copy there. And and You ever have the experience where you finish reading a book and you think, boy, that was easy, I could read a ton of these. Then you go out and buy ten and then they just fucking sit there. (laughs) How hard would it be to read one book a day? How much more knowledgeable would I be in my day-to-day life? Oh, it'd be great. You could be like um, Bradley Cooper in Limitless. <laughs> I'm reading a novel right now. I'm reading 1984. I love it. it takes so fucking long to read one of these things. <laughs> because uh, I a guess, movie you can do in 90 minutes is great. I mean, you don't watch television either for the same reason. I know. And I think that as cinephiles, the thing that really started me on my path was reading about these movies in books. Yeah. Because I lived in a small town and I didn't have any cinemas to go to. I had no video stores that I could rent movies. So the only way that I could really fall in love with motion pictures is by making them up in my mind by reading a description. That's the thing. Like, I think we were part of that last generation where, you know, we the internet was in its infancy. So not all movies were available if you knew where to download them them um we we were at the mercy of our local blockbusters and like fan culture or cinephile culture on the internet was also in its infancy so the best source for criticism for film history uh for what have you was books and you would read about movies that weren't at your local blockbuster and if they weren't at your local blockbuster they just might as well not have existed like they might have they might as well be like the magnificent ambersons or something when you hear about directors or people that work in film that fell in love with the medium it usually starts with i saw bride of frankenstein on television or i saw king kong or something like Mm -hmm. that and i can't even think of like one movie that captured my imagination on tv in a way that made me go well i'm in love with film now it was really about reading reference tomes specifically for me cult flicks and trash picks by the video ah yes my favorite my 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 favorite canine film critic Video and, Hound is still going, by the way. I was at Chapters the other day, and they still had a big video game. Video that is ridiculous. Yeah, Leonard Malton has bit the dust, but... That dog has more than 12 years you in see, it. see, uh, Video Hound rates films on a, a scale of four bones to woof. <laughs> and I should point out, before we really dive deep into all these books that we're going to talk about, that this list is available on Filmtrap.com. And that if you want to actually go and like write stuff down that interests you, you can go there and read it. And there'll actually be more books than the ones we talk about. Mm-hmm. So we broke it into categories. And uh, the Video Hound Cult Flicks and Trash Picks falls into the Books That Shaped Us category. Mm-hmm. Where I would carry this tome, and I think it was probably about 800 pages, everywhere with me. At school, when I ate breakfast, when I was on the can, I read it till it was in tatters. Oh yeah. Did you have the original edition, the one? No, I had the one that has Godzilla and Divine on the cover. There was a slimmer yeah. version that had... Um, it had Johnny Depp as Ed Wood on the cover. That's and uh, Tim Curry and Rocky Horror. Yeah. And, and mine 
my copy of that is like falling apart. <laughs> yeah. I, so that was a very important book for me too. I would say that when I think of the ones that shaped me in, you know, the, the very early days, yeah, it is those reference books. It's Leonard Malton, it's Video Hound, it's uh, Roger Ebert's reviews. And, you know, these are things that aren't all that important to me anymore. But I think that when you're growing up and you're getting into film, like you go through a long period of just trying to figure out what the canon is. Like, yeah, like what out, is important? What are the accepted uh, opinions about movies? And even Video Hound's cult flicks and trash picks. I mean, it has some contrarian reviews. But not many. I mean, for the most part, it tells you like what the the cult consensus around, like Rocky Horror Picture Show, Four Bones. You I know, will never forget. They gave, I don't remember the exact number of bones, but to Terry Gilliam's Brazil, ah, this movie's such a downer, <laughs> like two and a half bones or something like right, that. Well, that's ridiculous. But, yeah. but another book like that that would have been important for me was uh, The 50 Worst Films of All Time by the Medved Brothers, which... I, it was probably wasn't very important to many people in my generation. It was a real 70s phenomenon. And for people that don't know, the Medved brothers are most famous for creating the Golden Turkey Awards, which popularized Ed Wood as the worst filmmaker of all time. And uh, the 50 worst films of all time, it's a, it's a classic example of something that I think could have only existed in that pre-internet era where, you know, there were 50 movies in there. I had maybe seen two or three of them, like Santa Claus Conquers the Martians and Ega, probably. Yeah. Um, so all of these were just a mystery to me. It looked like this wonderful, like, uh, candy store of all these exotic-looking, terrible movies. Of course, I found out later that when they were writing this book, they were up against a deadline, so they were just, like, watching stuff on late-night TV. And, and they're like, yeah, this is a bad movie. Yeah, Throw it up on yeah, there. No one, will, no one will find out. So there's stuff in there like, you know, Dick Tracy meets Cue Ball or uh, Say One for Me. by. And there are a few, uh, you know, really contrarian choices, like Last Year at Marion Bad and Ivan the Terrible, which are Those just... are insane picks for worse movies of all time and, you know that's just anti-intellectual like preening and then there's and then the volume is rounded out by sort of like big flops of the day so like lost horizon at long last love is another one but again that's a book that i think when you're a kid it has this kind of like snarky mad magazine quality to it and it uh, makes you feel good about yourself and we should talk about books that were out of our generation like the psychotronic video guide which when you talk about cult films this book by michael j weldon is the one that people usually go to well for me in my mind it, it, those two psychotronic books were very important to me when i was a teenager they weren't for you no nope, never had a copy of them uh, well i loved them and to me they really vastly overshadowed the medved books because it it encouraged this kind of uh, less smug uh, approach to bad films or offbeat films. It was obvious that Weldon actually enjoyed these films as opposed to just kind of punching down towards them. Yeah, he was a Times Square dweller. Less than a value judgment. Psych the word psychotronic was more of a kind of freeform aesthetic. One that's kind of like a I know it when I see it thing. So anything that was weird, anything that was offbeat, if it had like Bella Lugosi or Roger Corman produced it. I remember reading the introduction to, I believe it was the video guide, and it talked about how Weldon used to make like weekly zines mm -hmm. about what movies were playing on television. And that kind of passion influenced me a lot and made me want to go, well, I want to do that. Like, I want to make zines that you can share with people about movies that you love and just spread the joy mm -hmm. in a way that's not just putting something on the internet. Mm -hmm. And there's other reference books that were really important in my life that 
uh, retroactively were terrible, terrible books. Mm -hmm. And I'm specifically speaking of Asian Cult Cinema by Thomas Wisner. Another favorite of mine growing up. So this Thomas Wisner book, you could just buy it at like chapters. Mm -hmm. It had Jackie Chan on the cover, (laughs) introduction by Oliver Stone, and it felt like a doorway into this cinema that you would never experience. Because these movies were not available at like any video stores um, around where I lived. You'd have to go to like a specific downtown shop or even Chinatown to pick them up. But even when I was growing up in Chinatown, like the real deep cuts weren't there. And we should point out that a lot of the reason that these deep cuts weren't there is that they didn't exist. (laughs) So Thomas Weiser ran a video bootleg shop I believe it was Video Miami, and that this Asian cult cinema book served as a kind of catalog to the movies that he would sell through his company. And he would rate the movies in this book, and they're crazy ratings. It's like, hard-boiled. Ah, two stars out of five. The plot makes no sense. Oh, wow. I don't remember that. (laughs) Yeah. You don't remember these crazy reviews? And the thing about this book is it's still like deep in my subconscious. There's movies I haven't seen because he gave them a bad review. I used to read that book like cover to cover. (laughs) Yep. Like like, repeatedly. This was everything you wanted. Yeah. (laughs) And it was like reading that book. It was like living a better life. It was like going into the world of Avatar or something where you had access. But instead of Pandora, it's a world where you have access to all of these really obscure, like, I don't know, Billy Chow kung fu movies. All or... these Category 3, like, oh, sex yeah. and ghost films. Oh, yeah. Uh, his description of uh, the Category 3 movie Pretty Woman, uh, not to be confused with the Julia Roberts movie where he said it ended with a 10-minute shower scene. <laughs> I would just, I was like, my jaw draw, like, fuck, why can't I watch that? <laughs> I would kill my parents to be able to watch Pretty Woman. And I did eventually see it. Oh, um, I, th- I thought you were going to be like, I did eventually kill my parents well, to see Pretty I, Woman. Not yet. And how was the motion picture experience? It's a good movie. Is it? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and there's other books that shape me, like uh, Rebel Without a Crew by Robert Rodriguez, because that was a book about like making movies, just mm-hmm. one guy going out and doing that, and it was inspirational. And you also put Crackpot, The Obsessions of John Waters on here. Yeah. Um, so, again, this is something about you know growing up in the suburbs and not having access to a lot of entertainment options. And also, when you're growing up, you know, as I said... Leonard Maltin, Roger Ebert, those are the people who shape the canon for you, shape what accepted opinions are. And John Waters' book, Crackpot, had an impact on me that I imagine like Susan Sontag's Notes on Camp would have had for a lot of people. Like his films, the book is all about kind of like finding uh, beauty in what uh, what most people would consider tacky and awful. And so he shows you a different way to look at the world. In fact, uh, I'm just going to read like a, a really short passage from it. Like he he loves the, he lo- he finds the lowbrow and the highbrow and the highbrow and the lowbrow. That's kind of his whole artistic project. So talking about Ingmar Bergman's Brink of Life, he says, "In high school, I used to sneak to a local college for a complete retrospective of the films of Ingmar Bergman." Except for scenes of a marriage, I still love Bergman, even the serpent's egg. But Brink of Life is my personal favorite. Three pregnant women locked in a maternity ward, going through all sorts of agony over miscarriage, abortion, sexual frigidity, fear, unwanted children, and all other neuroses that seem to be to Sweden what tulips are to Holland. Revival houses almost never dig this one out of the vaults, and I wish they would. Come on, Ingmar. How about Brink of Life (laughs) 2? I think that is very important as well as an education because he's saying, 
you know, I can like an Igmar Bergman movie as well as the other trashy stuff that I also love. Exactly. Which I think is very important because a lot of people when they're teenagers seem to uh, kind of burrow down and pick one genre that's important to them and stick to that one. Like... I love horror films. That's all that I love. And that's all that I want to watch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So why don't we move on to criticism? Mm-hmm. Uh, what were the Who were the film critics that kind of first captured you? Now, I'm going to be completely honest that I didn't really get into specific film critics until college. I would read criticism every Friday when the newspaper got passed around in class, flip to the back of the Ottawa Citizen to see, hmm, I wonder what the critics said about Jason X this week. Mm. But there was no specific bylines that I really liked. And I would say the first one that captured my imagination, that I really got a book of his stuff and went, this person has a singular vision, would be Jonathan Rosenbaum. Mm -hmm. And Jonathan Rosenbaum is the critic's critic. He's the guy that, like, he tackles the difficult stuff, but he writes about it in such an eloquent way that you go, well, this sounds like a great movie that I'm going to enjoy. When I was in uh, middle school, I guess I discovered Pauline Kael at the library, um, who intrigued me because, I mean, aside from the fact that she was a brilliant prose stylist, uh, she had very idiosyncratic taste. I think there's a limit to how much you're going to get out of Pauline Kael. We've talked about her... On her own episode. Yeah, on her own episode. But I don't think her ideological project, such as it is, isn't all that interesting. Mm -hmm. So she was eventually and fairly quickly exceeded in importance by Rosenbaum, by Jay Hoberman, and a little later by Robin Wood for me. And then we have to talk about the elephant in the room, which is important cinema club mascot, Andrew Saris, who wrote The American Cinema. And this was the textbook for people that wanted to be the crazy film watchers that knew everything about everything. Yeah, I I loved reading about Andrew Saris and thinking that, oh, he was this guy who like was going to see every movie ever made basically on 16 millimeter prints at the MoMA back in the 50s. And he had an opinion about everything. And he talked about these opinions like they were carved in granite. Yeah, like he was all about you know applying an almost scientific approach like he he ranked them by uh you know you got your expressive esoterica you got your canon you got your less than meets the eye Mm -hmm. and and everybody fit comfortably within one of these categories i mean he was very important to chipping away at the kind of high culture low culture distinction the fact that he suggested that you know not only is alfred hitchcock a great artist but Uh, Edgar G. Ulmer could be an artist of some interest. I mean, Jonathan Rosenbaum does a lot of that, which is going and trying to grab the filmmakers that are on the fringes and making them important. In his book, The Essential Cinema, Mm -hmm. he creates an alternative thousand movie canon to the ones that are usually shared in books like A Thousand One Movies to See Before You Die. Rosenbaum also has a great article called Towards the Devaluation of Woody Allen, which you can see online, where he basically makes the case. It's been a while since I've read it, so I'm sorry if I'm misquoting this, but he basically makes the case that Woody Allen is all about, you know, flattering the self-image of the sort of urbane, you know, middle-class city dwellers who go see his movies, unlike Jerry Lewis, who is all about challenging them and and, <laughs> and sort of putting their discomfort with their bodies and with their place in society on screen uh, in a very unvarnished and difficult way. I mean, whether or not you agree with them, it's it's an interesting approach uh, to film. I love Rosenbaum. He's so fun to read, mm. and all of his opinions seem valid in the moment where you are not very aware with the subjects that he's talking about. But sometimes you'll watch the movie and you'll be like, what? is going on. I don't know. Rosenbaum is definitely like um, 
expanded my horizons. Yeah, absolutely. As, as a film like, greatly. Filma- filmmakers I had never heard about have only come to the fore thanks to Jonathan Rosenbaum. And I remember picking up his, uh, he has a book on like, basically it's going around saying all the other Wells scholars are wrong mm. for, about Orson Welles. Yeah, yeah. D- discovering Orson Welles. Very good book. <laughs> and That's a book that for the hardcore <laughs> Wells fan, you know, yeah. somebody, somebody who really cares about the minutia of what was wrong with David Thompson's biography of Orson Welles, (laughs) for instance. But I think one thing that I I gravitate to in Rosenbaum, Hoberman, and Robin Wood is the fact they have a combative relationship with the, let's call it, media-industrial complex. Especially Robin Wood. Yeah. I mean, there's... There's a philosophy, there's the kind of Roger Ebert philosophy that says uh, we're writing for kind of the Friday night moviegoer and we have to uh, approach criticism on those terms and we have to empathize with the audience who, you know, if they're going to see a new Marvel movie, will they get what they want out of that Marvel movie? And I, that's an approach that, I mean, you know, I get it, but it's one that I'm less and less interested in mm-hmm. as, as I get older. I, I like these critics who challenge, you know, the, the apparatus through which uh, these these movies come out. Yes, I mean, it can get a little bit tiring sometimes. Yeah, I guess. But I also like want to be challenged by critics. Yeah, you know? and you've talked about before that your favorite criticism is the one that doesn't kind of toe the line and tell you if you're going to like it or not, but really tackles it and has a contrarian opinion, but does it in an eloquent and interesting way as opposed to someone like Armin White. But, but uh, Hoberman, too, is very interested in kind of situating these movies within the kind of uh, cultural forces through which they emerged. He's written these great books about the cold war yeah and uh you know the 60s uh and he's written also a lot about viewing films through like a jewish lens yes and he wrote one essay in particular in his book called vulgar modernism called bad movies which was very formative for me where he talks about ed wood and oscar michelle and there's just like one sentence he wrote that i think is really good he said ed wood was a toadstool on the edge of hollywood nourished by the movie industry's compost Michaud constructed an anti-Hollywood out of rags and bones on some barely imaginable psychic tundra. So he's in, like... I've always found um, that Jay Haberman's a little bit more difficult to read than Johnson Rosenbaum. Oh, I, I love him. But like, I like this idea where he's talking about Ed Wood in a way that's more sophisticated than the Medved approach, yeah. where it's like, what does Ed Wood actually represent? He is like the ass end of the film industry. He's the dumpster of the film industry where Edward goes into that dumpster and like constructs a bunch of shit out of whatever's been thrown out, whether it's faded movie stars or, you know out of passe trends or whatever. I think that we should talk about Robin Wood as well, because he's the one that, he's written a lot of books on cinema, but he kind of gets mentioned less and less these days. He wrote the like definitive first text on Hitchcock, mm-hmm. um, which you can now find as Hitchcock Revisited. Yeah, because he totally, he added new chapters because he's somebody who had a big change in his life where he came out as gay, basically when he was middle-aged and that... Uh, and he, I guess, became a much more committed socialist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that changed his assumptions about a lot of things from early in his career. And uh, he also has that book of essays, uh, Hollywood from Vietnam to Reagan, that is very important. I think that would be the first one you'd probably want to check out if you want like a taste of Robin Wood. It's a great book. He's all about, you know, finding the patriarchal capitalism in those. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Every... and, and that Hollywood ideology in all in all of those movies. Um, yeah, it's great. He I, He's probably a little less important to me than Hoberman and Rosenbaum were just because I came to him later. But yeah, he's but he's still great. And then you have like the textbook film class um, volumes like Hitchcock by Truffaut, 
Yeah. Which is the uh, filmmaker interviewing another filmmaker book. And then there's a book that I only discovered really recently called The Devil Finds Work by James Baldwin. Um, you may have heard Baldwin's name recently because he is the basis of the movie I Am Not Your Negro, which was nominated for an Oscar. And The Devil Finds Work is a collection... It's kind of memoir-ish film criticism about him tackling a bunch of movies and approaching them from a very personal and racially charged direction. Like his um, essay about The Exorcist is so good and from a perspective that I haven't really read about very much that you should really check it out. It's only about 160 pages too, so it's a quick read. Oh, great. I just read The Fire next time and I really liked it, so Mm -hmm. maybe I should check this out. I mean, he's a great author. And then you go into biography. And so there are a million film biographies And on the list that we made, we actually don't have that many stars on it. No. Well, I mean, with biographies, it's not like critics where they can give you a philosophy that will actually change the way you look at movies. I mean, I don't know. Uh, With with biographies, it kind of comes down more to are you interested in the subject and does it give you a lot of interesting information about that subject? Right. Because then, you know, we have This is Orson Welles by Peter Bogdanovich and Jonathan Rosenbaum, Mm -hmm. which is an amazing interview with Welles. Nightmare of Ecstasy, which we've talked about before, which is the Ed Wood Mm -hmm. oral history. Um, My Autobiography by Charles Charlie Chaplin. And why don't we uh, talk a little bit about The Ghastly One by Jimmy McDonough about the great Andy Milligan. So Andy Milligan is one of the um, great figures in cinema where (laughs) I would recommend probably reading his biography before seeing any of his movies. Yeah, his movies are, it's like, imagine Ed Wood meets Jean Genet meets Xavier Dolan. But really difficult. no (laughs) technique whatsoever. Yep. (laughs) It's just people yelling and, and like just pure anger and hate and (laughs) the history behind how Andy Milligan made these movies and the kind of personal complications that went um, with it create a narrative that is more interesting than most movies ever well you find out the whole kind of New York uh, scene that he came out of he directed plays at this cafe called the Cafe Chino, where he did these very avant-garde, semi-improvised, sort of, again, Jean Genet-like dramas, where he actually encouraged the actors to physically beat each other up on stage, and he was just a very sadistic taskmaster. Um, You know, he he was an early queer filmmaker. He did a movie called Vapors. Uh, All of his movies seem to be working out his weird and sick relationship with his mother there's a good blurb on the cover of the book by john waters where he says this book asks the uh important question can somebody be untalented and also a genius (laughs) that is a great question for andy milligan and then i put here uh kim john il production by paul fisher this is a book that only came out a few years ago but it's about the fascinating subject of the filmmaker and his wife that were captured out of south korea by kim john il and forced for years to make films uh, that tow the uh, propagandistic uh, North Korean line, including the famous giant monster communist movie, Pull Grassy. Is that movie available anywhere? Uh, I think you can find it on YouTube. Yeah, it's one that's very widely disseminated. And it actually uh, has special effects by the um, Japanese uh, technicians that were working on Godzilla at the time. I haven't uh, read the book, but it's on my shelf. I got to get to it. And then we uh, can jump into the history subcategory where we have books like Easy Rider Raging Bulls, which is the gossipy um, history of the new Hollywood. Well, Easy Rider Raging Bulls is just like one of those books that every kind of like cinephile reads at some point. It's provides next to no insight on the movies, but it's very important for just 
giving this sense that like 70s Hollywood was this mythical place where uh, big egotistical artists ran amok. And then like final cut, the making of Heaven's Gate, speaking of egotistical artists. I'm reading that one right now. Which is about um, Michael Cimino and the making of the film that took down United Artists. Mm -hmm. This is an interesting book because it's positioned from the perspective of the producers, not Mm -hmm. the creative people, and how they reacted to this mega budget just spinning its wheels until it took out the whole establishment with it. I finally saw Heaven's Gate, so now I'm so now I can finally read this. I'm like a third of the way into it. And the other Hollywood, the oral history about of uh film pornography starting from the 70s mm-hmm. by Legs McNeil and Jennifer Osborne. Uh a rollicking good read. I mean it's a uh... it's a good history of of pornography one of the problems with it though is it takes a lot of interviews from a lot of different sources so in the oral history like you'll get a little snippet from like harry reams's ghost written autobiography from the early 70s and it and so you're not quite sure is it real is it not real yeah or you'll see quotes from linda lovelace's various autobiographies which are wildly conflicting oh i kind of like that because there's like this um coffee table book called crystal lake memories about the making of the friday the 13th films and what the author does is it's an oral history and he uh, puts head to head like conflicting opinions yeah so like you can make up your own mind about what's real or not but i don't feel like in the other hollywood it's properly Mm. uh, indicated like where all this stuff is coming from and i mean a lot of it is also legs mcneil's own uh, research. And I uh, slipped in here The Devil's Candy, which is one that's not really talked about too much, but that's a document about the making of Bonfire of the Vanities, the famous Brian De Palma fiasco. Mm -hmm. And it's just a real insight about like how much work goes into these movies to finally result in something that nobody cares about. There's a chapter about an assistant director trying to get this one shot and how important it is to him and how important that it is that he impresses Brian De Palma. And it's hilarious because in the movie, the shot is nothing. You would never (laughs) even realize it if you saw it on screen. We have uh, The Parade Goes By on here, a really great book about uh, silent cinema by uh, the famous archivist and writer Kevin Brownlow. Um, That's also an oral history. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's got a lot of interviews with various people from the silent era i mean we're really fortunate this book that you know kevin brownlow is one of your like original movie nerds who went out and interviewed all the people that he loved you know harold lloyd or gloria swanson or whatever there's for for instance there's a first-hand account of him being on the set of a countess from hong kong uh with gloria swanson as they're watching chaplin direct and swanson is talking to him about oh god charlie's never changed this is just (laughs) like he used to direct people back in the old days and then we also have uh another book about um classic hollywood picture by lillian ross which is one that i actually never heard about until i watched a trailer on trailers from hell Uh, that was hosted by Joe Dante for John Huston's The Red Badge of Courage, which is a film that's been forgotten in the sands of time, but it was like this big production for John Huston. And a uh, journalist, Lillian Ross, followed um, how the production went from pre to post and how the film just kind of fell apart. And I think it's that book more than anything that uh, is accountable for John Huston's relatively big place in film history i mean you know when you look at john houston's filmography there are a lot of great movies and then there are a lot of kind of bad movies and i i I sort of feel like the consensus among a lot of people is that you know he he, he's not really in the same league as like john ford or howard hawks but that book did a lot to create this reputation for him as you know this buccaneering like swashbuckling white hunter blackheart kind of guy a lot of stories um that are associated from john houston are found in that book Mm -hmm. and i just want to point out that it also features as a supporting character 
Albert Band, who was John Huston's assistant at the time, mm-hmm. maybe like assistant director, who was the father of Charles Band, ah. the guy that ran Full Moon Pictures. It all comes back to the good stuff. So then we have studies. And speaking of Full Moon Pictures, I put here Empire of the Bees, um, a book chronicling the rise and fall of Empire Pictures, Charlie Band's first company. So this is one of those books that I love, which tackles the a very niche subject matter. In this case, a uh, struggling production studio who made films like Reanimator, Castle Freak, Robot Jocks. <laughs> Castle Freak, that's one where the Castle Freak tears off his own ding-dong. Right? I, I actually just named three movies directed by <laughs> Stuart Gordon, but uh, that's the only thing that I could think of. Yeah, wait, does he tear off his ding-dong in I, that it movie? Was, it must be it the uncut version, right? He did. Yeah. <laughs> This also brings to mind that a lot of the books on these lists are long out of print. Yeah. And that they cost a lot of money if you want to pick them up. From this list, I'm going to highlight um, another porn-related book uh, because that's that's where my mind is. Um, it's Hardcore, Power, Pleasure, and the Frenzy of the Visible by Linda Williams. This was really the pioneering book in a now-flourishing field of porn studies. Uh, what's notable about this book is it came in the 80s, you know, during that era of the Mies Commission and everything, and it was the first book to kind of take porn films seriously as, you know, individual filmic texts were worth cons- consideration and, and not about the phenomenon as a whole, whether porn has the right to exist or not. So there's a chapter, for instance, where she goes over three Marilyn Chambers films talking about how they how they depict variations of like a sexual utopia. So there's Behind the Green Door where it's like a Busby Berkeley backstage musical where the sex or in Busby Berkeley's case, the music only exists on stage. Um, it's segregated from the real world. But then there's a movie like Insatiable. Uh, where it's like pornotopia. Everybody's fucking all the time. So I had never read Hardcore until Will put it on this list, and I went and picked it up. And I have to say, it's a great book, but it also is right on the fringe of being something that I don't like when you talk about film. So film is something that for a long time was considered, you know, not an academic subject. Okay, you're gonna you're the populist here, right? Yeah, that's what I'm jumping this is in the here. The snobs against the slobs. <laughs> so, uh, hardcore is written very academically. Okay, but in a readable fashion. Yeah, I mean, I went, but we don't have many academic books on this list. Uh, I, I guess not. You know what I would add to the list, maybe belatedly? I would add uh, David Boardwell's Planet Hong Kong. Oh, love Planet Hong yeah. Kong. Um, well, because I, when I made this list, I kind of wanted to make sure that we didn't repeat like the more than one author yeah, twice. Yeah. So I actually do have David Boardwell a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. But before we get out of studies, I, I do want to talk about Hong Kong Action Cinema by Bay Logan. Yeah. Because that is a great book. I, like Hong Kong Action Cinema is a good one to highlight, but it was also for me just one of like maybe a half dozen Hong Kong books that I read all the time uh, growing Sex up. Sex and Zen, a bullet in the head. That was one of them. Uh, Rick Meyer's great martial arts movies was another. Um, I even, you know, a book that I wouldn't recommend, but that I just read a lot anyway, was Paul Fonneroff's At the Hong Kong Cinema, which was a collection of his newspaper reviews. And the guy... Didn't he like, didn't like Hong Kong movies. He didn't like anything. He was, but he was right on the ground floor, that's, too. Well, that's what's valuable about the book. Yeah. It is a document. And he's not a very good critic, either. I mean, he's not a good writer or anything. But then, when you're going more into these fringe kind of cult subjects, you also have the giant tome that is American Nightmare by Stephen Thrower. Which I haven't read. I've just got his Jess Franco book, though. So this book is deep 
dives, interviews, everybody involved about movies that you probably will not like. And I think there's something really worthwhile in that, that there's an author willing to just write about Curse of the Screaming Dead for 20 pages, a movie that's difficult just to make through 90 minutes of it. Yeah. And that it, it just gives you a perspective that you wouldn't expect. Like you watch these bad movies and you go, oh, these movies are bad. And then you just kind of brush them off. But this really shows that, you know, people with hopes and dreams were behind these things. You know, something about Stephen Thrower, he's always got an interview on whatever the new Jess Franco Blu-ray is. Yes. I always look forward to it. Yeah, he is a very interesting critic who has that bug that he needs to document everything in the final form. Like you will get all the information you will get out of this. Yeah. We've got a category here called historically important books I didn't read until much later. I guess one that I would maybe highlight in here is uh, the Cahiers du Cinema anthologies and also Godard on Godard. Um, I would say these are not, you know, you hear so much about Cahiers du Cinema. You hear so much about Godard's film criticism. I would say they're not the most readable books. things out there i think the word you're um, looking for is impenetrable but i would say that there are certain ideas in them that have stuck with me you know i think of their the kind the famous coyote cinema review of young mr lincoln which takes kind of a maybe the word would be holistic approach to the film looking at you know the, the politics of john ford of the studio at the time or uh th- there the, there's another essay i think on uh structuring absences which is really important and of course you know Truffaut introduced uh, the auteur theory. Godard's criticism, um, you know... Uh, you mean the Mad Libs? <laughs> that is Godard's criticism? I, I think Godard is frankly not a very good critic. And maybe that's a bit of a hot take, but like, I think what people respond to him is his kind of like wild enthusiasm and the fact that he would say things like, uh, Vincent Manelli could be a painter, Orson Welles could be a politician, but the cinema is Nicholas Ray. <laughs> I don't know. I find him a bit useless as a critic. I love that book, though, because it is very thoroughly annotated. And some of the annotations go, I don't even know what he's talking about here. Yeah. And then you have other, like, big, important books, like Cult Cinema by Danny Perry. Yeah, those were books that I you know, probably got at a used bookstore three years ago. Yeah. Uh, very enjoyable to read, but you hear people all the time, you know, people in the 80s who are like, oh God, those books were my Bible. Yeah, like those were the jumping off points to discover films that I had never heard about. Film as a Subversive Art was by Amos Vogel was one that I only just read this year that was also important for a lot of people. Also, uh, Jonas Mika's, his articles, they just came out with, you know, in the last year, a compilation of some of his village voice columns, which you read it, right? Yes, I did. I thought it was very interesting to read just as a time capsule. Yeah. I think as a critic... Like, you get it. Like, you, well, you get it right off the bat. You're like, wow, he has a really interesting perspective on things. Well, the thing is, he's not actually a very good critic, because all, all of what he, he'll say is... Every review is a variation of Stan Brakhage's Dog Star Man just came out and and it is epochal. But to describe what is epochal about it would do it injustice. This is a film that one must see as surely as one must see the sunset, the sunrise. You've got a really interesting perspective. Okay, there's that perspective again. Are you going to like detail it a little but, bit? Or? Like, so basically he's just a promoter. Yes, he, that's what he is. But what's... I mean, he ran a bunch of cinemas and stuff like that. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's a great document of that time, of that New York underground time. And then you have the Film Syllabus 101 books, like Film Art by David Bordwell, which we talked about him a little bit before. His Planet Hong Kong book is one of the most interesting books about Hong Kong cinema, because not only did he have almost infinite access to the filmmakers, like there are like standing side by side Wong Jing (laughs) 
essays or he got to interview Troy Hark about stuff. There's also shot-by-shot breakdowns on why he believes these films work the way that they do. Mm -hmm. Like, why does a Bruce Lee fight scene feel like a Bruce Lee fight scene? And he's going to break it down, like, shot by shot. He also had that great blog post from a few years ago comparing the mall fight in Police Story to the opening action scene of Casino Royale. You probably remember that, right? The only thing that kind of makes me wary about David Bordwell is he kind of falls in love about things that I'm like, why are you talking about this? Like, in the updated version of Planet Hong Kong, which is long out of print, but he did it digitally, there's a long essay about Initial D, Oh, the yeah. um, drift racing movie that came out of Hong Kong. That was a huge hit. Yeah, and has been quickly forgotten. Yeah. Did he like Initial D? Yes, he did. Okay. He loved it. Like, he could not stop talking about it. Hmm. And then you have kind of um, foundation works, like the Japanese cinema by Donald Ritchie. Hmm. He was the guy that brought uh, Japanese films to North America in a way that, you know, they talked about them academically and with importance. He's also written uh, important books about Kurosawa and Ozu. All right, let's get to the fun stuff, though. Magazines we read or have read. So, right at the top of the list, the one magazine that I've mentioned before will be the first one I go to pick up off the shelf is Shock Cinema. Mm. It's been published for decades at this point. Yeah. And it's just mostly composed of interviews with C-list players and movie reviews of films that you have never heard of because they're probably ABC movies of the week. Yeah. Well, they've gone over pretty much all of the good, like, schlock movies at this point. And so. you can find a lot of reviews in it in the book by the editor, Steve Polchaski. Yeah, that, I think that's right. And uh, which is called Slime Time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, every, every time there's a new issue of, uh, you know, I subscribe to CinemaScope, I subscribe to Film Comment, I always get the new Sight and Sound, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just your, your bedrock, uh, if you want to know what's happening in the world of film, you read those. And then you have other greats like Cinema Sewer by Robin Bougie. Yes. Which is a great magazine and now mostly known in book form. Yes, but he still comes out with an issue every year. Uh, he just had a new one out. Uh, I always look forward to it. Uh, It's, you know, handwritten, hand-drawn. It's as much a kind of, like, grungy art zine as Mm -hmm. it is uh, a film zine, but... He likes, uh, well, he, he likes porn a lot. A lot. He is, you know, one of the original kind of like porn fanboys. Uh, so, some of some of Cinema Sewer, you know, makes me feel a little bit like an old granny as I'm reading it. Like, oh boy. Nah, nah. And, <laughs> That's a graphic drawing of a woman um, being rammed in the dildo. Yeah. With, uh, I don't know, a knife of some kind. But I mean, it's not as mean spirited as it sounds. Like it, it there's it's a, just very graphic. It's very graphic, but like there's a palpable sense of joy in everything mm-hmm. that he's describing. Like he's really enthusiastic about this stuff and it feels like one of the last of a dying breed which is like the fanzine Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i mean there's still some published in toronto right now like the laser blast film society zine Uh, there there are some good bylines in there (laughs) yeah Yeah. there's one really great article uh by a w sloan about (laughs) uh, bruce exploitation recently good stuff and then we have projections which is a magazine slash book series that lasted in the 90s which i had never even heard about until i found copies at used bookstores so these basically look like books and i believe they were published annually edited by john borman the um director of excalibur point blank and these are filmmakers on films and it's just like like there'll be an article by the coen brothers uh talking about movies that they love Mm -hmm. every issue has like a hundred page diary of a filmmaker trying to make his film whether it's john borman himself or a french filmmaker like bertrand tavernier and it like just really deep dives 
feeling unedited about pure film love. I've never read it. I'd love to check it out. Oh yeah, they're great. I think there's about a dozen of them. While we're on magazines, I'd like to throw a shout out to our friend Greg Woods and his The Eclectic Screening Room scene. Love that zine. Uh, that was one that, you know, I, I used to collect every year at Word on the Street when he was out there. And basically, it was kind of like just a trip through Greg Woods' mind and VHS collection. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, where you can find articles uh, by a young Will Sloan. Not all of them very good, I gotta say. <laughs> but a super fun zine. And hey, it may come back soon. Yeah. Well, I, are they, can you still pick them up? Like, does Greg Woods have them on his website? I don't or? know. Let us know, Greg. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, send us an email and like we will advertise for you for free. Yeah. Because I think that I remember stumbling upon it at Word on the Street. Yeah. And being like, whoa, what is this film zine? Like the styles of movies that he would champion in the zine were kind of like late night TV. Yes. So whether it's a... Uh, you know, whether it's a show like Offbeat Cinema in the New York area where they would show like, you know, Catwoman of the Moon or Plan 9 from Outer Space or just kind of like kind of forgotten new Hollywood 70s films or, or even just a deep dive into experimental cinema. Yeah. Or and he had a whole issue on uh, classroom films and another issue on film noir. It is a zine that I have like sometimes doubles and triples of it <laughs> yeah. because I would go and buy a whole bunch and then get home and realize, oh, man, I already have this one. He did a whole one about the career of Rob. Roger Corman, which is great, except for the contributions by a 17-year-old Will Sloan. <laughs> we actually skipped over um, the Roger Corman book by Beverly Gray, which is the best oh, book on Roger Corman. Well, it's the only, I think, nuanced take on Roger Corman. I mean, all the other books just tell you the same old stories. You know, he's this lovable old uh, schlockmeister. But this one kind of shows the the private pain of the man, you know, the compromises he made along along the way. And then I also love novels about cinema. Usually they're about like cinematic obsession. There's Throat Sprockets, which is about a man that kind of gets hypnotized by a Jess Franco-like film and <laughs> is obsessed with finding everything about it. And then there's Flicker by Theodore Rosnack, which has the same kind of plot, which is a man... Uh, gets obsessed with a uh, film that's very heavily influenced by um, Edgar G. Ulmer's Black Cat and wants to know everything about it. He goes and meets a cinematographer and it's just, that one is more kind of a, both of those books are kind of creeping mysteries with like paranoia right on the edges and doom right around the corner. And then you have something like Paul Auster's Book of Illusions, which is a, a man who lost his family who gets obsessed with this Charlie Chaplin-like filmmaker who has disappeared from the cinema scene and his mission about finding everything that he can about these filmmakers. There's just something so attractive about these novels because they speak to me so directly. Mm -hmm. And these are all really great authors. Like Paul Auster is famous for like his New York trilogy and stuff like that. Tim Lucas is a critic and Theodore Rosnack was kind of a cultural critic. Mm -hmm. Canadian, actually. And then I have a section that Will will have nothing to say about, which is French-only books. Well, I have one thing to say about it, which is that I have one of these books and can't read it. It's uh, Bonjour, Monsieur Lewis by Robert Benayoun. Robert Benayoun was the critic for the French film magazine Positif, who was obsessed with Jerry Lewis. Like, obsessed. He made a seven-hour documentary about Jerry Lewis. Um, and I guess it really must have flattered Jerry's ego. In the American cinema, in his passage on Jerry Lewis, Andrew Saris subtweets Robert Benayoun, basically saying... There is a French film critic who so resembles Lewis that hero worship verges on narcissism. <laughs> and then you have a book like Passage du Cinema, which I was introduced by David Davidson, who works at the TIFF gift shop. And he just buys like French books to mm -hmm. give out. And this one is a phone book sized book that are just quotes 
from filmmakers across history, taken from magazines, everything. And it's so much fun just to read cover to cover mm. because you're just going to discover stuff. Or a book like Dicks Out Cinema by Jacques Lourcel. Did you say Dicks Out for Cinema? <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> Dicks Out for Cinema. That's our new motto. <laughs> Dictionnaire du Cinema okay. by Jacques Lourcel, which is the only film book which is like a David Thompson-like reference guide, which is filled with reviews, very eloquent, of movies that do not exist anymore. Mm. Like that have never been released on VHS, that like he saw in the cinema in the 60s and 50s and have gone the way of the dodo, which has happened to a lot of films, but we don't talk about them most of the time because the people that saw them when they were released have passed on or they're just not important enough for us to actually discuss. That's sad. All right, so that is our giant list in our longest episode ever. And if you have any books that you think we missed, and I'm sure that you believe that we did, uh, email us at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Say, Justin, do we have any emails? Yes, we do have some emails. A loyal listener, I assume, called Rachel Barber sent us this email. Hey, boys. I want to do a double shout out for your Winnipeg and lady listeners. I first heard about your podcast through searching Guy Madden in iTunes, typical, and I've been following ever since. Just finished listening to your Mike Lee episode and legit LOL'd when Will mentioned how old people are the worst at watching movies. (laughs) I once sat beside an older, thoroughly confused couple at a screening of Terrence Malick's Night of Cups. Every five minutes or so, one of them would turn to the other and say at top volume, what's going on? Can I just interject here? because I just uh, remembered uh, a story uh, where I saw uh, Simon Lang's uh, very slow art film Journey to the West at TIFF and there was a couple behind me that kept saying there's nothing happening in this movie. I think they just found out that it was like a Taiwanese movie and they're like, oh, we've been to China. So they kept like loudly going like, uh, how are they going to explain this movie? This is really, this is really terrible. And eventually people started shushing them. Well, what happens at a lot of these film festivals is that older couples who have yeah. a lot of time on their hands just buy ticket packages to whatever movie. Because it's in a film festival, so it must be good, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's why you get a lot of people being like, ah, this movie was terrible. It was the yeah. worst thing I ever saw. Anyway, so Rachel continues, I now have almost no memory on the, of the movie. Something about Christian Bale being sad and walking into the ocean a lot? Because that couple entirely overwrote the experience for me. All this is a long preamble to my question. What movies have you guys seen in the theater that were entirely ruined by the presence of another moviegoer? Have you ever thought that you hated a movie and then watched it under different circumstances and found it significantly improved? Or alternatively, is there a movie that benefits from a rowdy audience? Beside The Room, obviously. Uh, I mean, this is a three-pronged question. I feel like I can't off the top of my head think of a movie that was ruined by someone else. I mean, I have very distinct memories of people being super annoying. I remember watching Star Trek Into Darkness. The person behind me was explaining the entire Star Trek missos Mm. to, I assume, his girlfriend the entire time. And it's just like the movie disappears and all you can hear is this person behind you. And there's many strategies you can utilize to get them to shut up. You can turn around and be like, shh. Which yeah. just makes them angry. terrible, yeah. You can turn around and be like, hey, guys, could you um, stop talking? And then please? you're a cuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, what, that's usually what I do. Yeah. Because just a realization of people like, oh, we're too loud, yeah, sometimes yeah, shuts yeah. them up. And then there's the other where you want to be like, shut the fuck up! That uh, usually yeah. is a last resort. It did happen, though, when we were seeing The Devils 
um, the Ken Russell film at the Bloor Cinema was Ken Russell in attendance. I was at that theater, yes. There were some hipsters behind us who would not shut oh. up during the first five minutes. And my friend turned around and just red-faced and furious was like, just like, shut up. <laughs> and they got up and left. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was, when I saw John Wick 2 a few weeks ago, a fight almost broke out in the theater. Somebody like actually like jumped up two rows to start a fist fight with somebody who was talking. And really? It only lasted like two seconds. <laughs> um, I would say the uh, probably the worst uh, movie-going experience I've ever had was I went to Lincoln Center at the, I think it was the Alice Tully Auditorium, I'm not sure, but uh, to see Monsieur Hulot's Holiday at allegedly a children's matinee of it. What? <laughs> children's matinee? Um, I didn't realize. Because you know what children love. Yeah, um, French, French whimsy. Yeah. Um, I, I can't, um, I, I don't think I knew it was a children's matinee at the time, but it was just pandemonium. It was kids running everywhere, kids on their iPads. Like ki- ki- the kids do not like black and white, slow paced, uh, whimsical. <laughs> Observational comedy. Yeah, it was, it was, it was just terrible. Uh, another bad experience I had was, I, I went to see uh, Fahrenheit 9-11 with my uncle and it was sold out. So we went to see Coffee and Cigarettes by Jim Jarmusch, uh, which we went to see because Bill Murray was in it. Um, and as I was watching it, I liked it. it I thought it was quite, quite strange and different and interesting and got me very interested in Jarmusch. But my uncle was not having it. He detested it uh, I, I don't, and, and would never, ever let me forget about it. I don't know if I ever told a story about when we went to go see Avatar uh, my dad bought tickets. It was going to be on Christmas Day, I believe. Mm-hmm. And when we got to the cinema, he realized that the tickets were for the day before. So we missed it. But we were already there. We bought all our popcorn. So he, we decided, hey, Justin, you're a film goer. Mm-hmm. What do you think you would recommend? And I'm like, well, the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus just came out. Mm-hmm. So we went to go see that. And it was just an uncomfortable silence the entire time. Okay, you know, and this is bad because now all the blame is on you because yes. you're the one who suggested it, which is unfair because yeah. it's not like you've seen it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's that feeling you have when like friends come over and they're like, "Hey, you want? Let's watch a movie." And you're like, "Wow, I've heard this is good." Yeah. And then you watch it and they don't like it, terrible. and you feel like it's your fault. Yeah. Like you personally made this movie. Yeah, yeah, terrible. <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, certain movies can definitely benefit from a rowdy audience. I mean, I. I remember seeing uh, Ong Bak, the Thai warrior with Tony Jaw at a, a, a mall theater in Rexdale, which for our non-Toronto listeners, Rexdale is an area of the city that let's say has not been gentrified. Yes. Um, and it, it, seeing it, it was kind of like what I imagine like seeing a Kung Fu movie with a 42nd street audience was like, like just, you know, nonstop cheering at every like good fight scene you know big laughs at all the funny parts i'm a huge fan of audience participation in movies that like kind of encourage it yeah midnight madness at toronto at fantasia people that are just getting in the movies and applauding like that's fun to me i think the room was funny you know in its early days yes. at the early screenings but i haven't seen it in a while and from what i understand it's kind of been taken over by kind of a frat boy element i haven't been to any recent screenings you know when a movie's bad and it gets fans it gets kind of like like you're really making fun of that movie in a mean-spirited way at some point because you're doing it over and over and over again. Well, I remember when it started showing in Toronto, it was kind of like a hipster thing to yeah. do. But now it's become more of a bro thing to do. Um, and before we get off the subject, I just want to talk about how I really have to thank my father because I would see him once a week in Ottawa 
And as a teenager, there was all these movies I wanted to see, but I couldn't get into because they were rated R and they were far from where my dad lived. So he would take me to see movies that he would have no interest in. Mm. So we went to go see Kill Bill, me and my dad, yeah. side by side. When that ended, he went, that was weird. <laughs> and then we, we also saw Hostel together. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that was... Yeah, an interesting experience. But I just love that my dad would, like, take me to see these movies, even though that he knows he's not going to like this. That like, is nice. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so uh, Rachel actually has a PS to this. She says, would it kill you guys to do a few more episodes about women? Come on. We know you can do it. Just do it. Yeah, this is something that I think Justin and I both get. Uh, pe- people talk to us about this a lot. It, and and you're right. We should do more women. It's it's difficult. And one of the reasons is because uh, when you look at the statistics, women have direct, you know, what, 5% of movies, which is, you know, a terrible structural problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it ought to be addressed. Uh, you know, w- women should be directing more movies. But like, the problem is, because that's the way it's been, it gives us a smaller pool to choose from. So we've, we've tried to be a little creative in the past. Uh, we, we did one on Pauline Kael. We did an episode on one shot wonder directors where we brought up Barbara Loden and we've done certain female directors like Elaine May and uh, Doris Wishman, Doris Wishman. That was us really reaching. I mean, you know, uh, and, and I guess we ought to take some blame for this because there are a lot of female directors that we haven't done because like Chantal Ackerman's a big example because we're not, we're concerned we can't do justice to them and because we think it might be hard. And like we did Catherine Breillard. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's it's a somewhat limited pool to choose from. And yes, we do have to challenge ourselves. We have a list of female filmmakers we do want to uh, tackle. We also don't want to blow through them all in the first hundred episodes, right? But what are we going to do next week? We're... Because we're taking this to heart. Yeah. We're going to be doing Ingrid Bergman, the actress. Yes, because uh, why can't we, we... We can do actresses. This yes. is one way to get a little goddamn estrogen on this <laughs> show, you know? So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about one of our classic Hollywood films, Gaslight, the George Cooker film. And we're also going to be doing a Journey to Italy, the uh, Robert Rossellini picture. Ingrid Bergman is a really interesting figure because she came from Sweden to work in Hollywood... And then went to Italy, dropping everything that she had um, kind of built up at the time. Mm -hmm. And I have not seen either of these films. Neither have I. All right. So as per usual, rate and review us on iTunes, uh, Important Cinema Club Podcast. Haven't seen a review in a while. Yeah. What's up, guys? Where can they write us? (laughs) At Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. You can find the list of movies we talked about at filmtrap.com. Oh, uh, we've also got the Patreon account where in this episode, uh, we're talking about a little movie called Cannibal Holocaust. So the Important Cinema Club Patreon, for five bucks a month, you get an extra episode a week that's about 15 to 20 minutes long where we just tackle a movie and just riff. And it allows us to kind of stretch our wings about stuff that we wouldn't normally dedicate a whole episode to. Right. So if you're a fan of the podcast and you want more of us, five bucks a month, you get a whole new episode every week. And you help Justin pay his bills. That's right. So that's it for the Important Cinema Club for this week. My name is Justin McClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. I did something a few days ago that I haven't done in a long time, which is... Sex. No. <laughs> I keep going. <laughs> Wait, sorry. We're not talking about you, Will. Uh, yeah, about... yeah, hey! This is the chemistry that makes the important <laughs> cinema club the important cinema club. Is that me and two other friends with a few rotating guests had an all-night movie marathon. Now, I believe that we've talked about this in the past, which is that you're not a big fan of this, right? No. 
And it just, you can't handle it or? Uh, I like to sleep at night. And uh, I think, you know, at, at some point after you've seen seven movies in a row, like your brain melts. Seven? Well, we watch however many. 12 or 13? Yeah, right. What, what was the theme of this marathon? The theme was shitty shot on video movies. There's a website and book called Bleeding Skull about um, shot on video movies that came out in the 80s and 90s. Mm. And they put a letterbox list out called Video Drugs, which is these movies are like being on drugs while watching them. So now I looked at these movies and went, I don't want to watch these by myself. And I can't justify gathering people to watch one or two of them (laughs) because like they're going to be bad, right? So why don't we just watch like... Uh, more than a dozen of them. <laughs> One of the people stayed up the entire night. I fell asleep around four and napped for like two and a half movies. <laughs> but there's just a feeling of waking up, looking over and seeing a uh, friend just sitting there watching a movie alone at five in the morning. You know, you're kind of selling me on this idea. It's almost like like this dream state. It is. Drifting in and out like Finnegan's Wake or something. <laughs> like I would wake up. And I would see this movie shot by a 17-year-old called Weasels Rip My Flesh. And I'm like, what? What's going on? My friend's like, uh, there's a weasel man that's fighting a giant weasel. And then I'd be watching and a shark pops up on screen and bites someone. I'm like, whoa. And then I would fall promptly to sleep. What are your favorite uh, shot on video uh, horror movies? Oh, that's a tough one. You know, the video format allowed people to come in and just make movies, right? Like you don't need to pay for the film. You don't need to pay to process it. So on one hand, you get this uncut vision of an artist's psyche. On the other, they're often unwatchable Mm -hmm. and that the people making the movies have no idea the basic blocks of telling a story. I definitely like shot on video horror movies, mostly for the fact that they can sometimes be be folk art. Yes. So I'm thinking of the guy who made uh, Black Devil Doll from Hell and uh, Tales from the Quad Dead Zone. Yeah. Films directed by uh, Chester Novel Turner, who is this, you know, just this guy in Chicago who decided he wanted to make movies. And and in that era like video store shelves just needed to be stocked with stuff it didn't matter what it was like if you had a video and it was 60 minutes it could have 20 minutes of credits doesn't matter like donald farmer's demon queen the video stores would stock it and these two films by uh chester novel turner are just so kind of like weird and like kind of mean-spirited and and strangely violent they've got weird sex stuff in them uh but they also kind of feel like movies that a church group might have got together and made yes (laughs) like just totally inexplicable stuff I also like some of the ones that kind of take advantage of the aesthetic of shot on video. There was one, I haven't seen it in a really long time, so maybe take my recommendation with a grain of salt, but uh, Red Spirit Lake by Charles Pinion, and I think Richard Kern is in it as an actor, is kind of interesting. There's stuff that falls into the kind of shot on video uh, family that are usually are sometimes shot on Super 8 or Super 16, Mm. but they have the same aesthetic qualities as those movies, like something like um, Barry G. Gillis's Things. Oh, yeah. I love that movie. Uh, Things is... Have we talked about it on this podcast? I don't know if we have. Let's let's do it. Okay, so Things is a movie that is indescribable. (laughs) Like, it is made by aliens and people that don't understand what makes a movie like it looks like it was shot by a little person every angle is like a low angle looking up a bunch of canadian hosers yeah that's who made it like a bunch of bob and doug mckenzie types in rural ontario who made this 
haunted house horror movie and their big star is they got the porn star amber lynn to be in it but they didn't have enough money for her to take off her clothes so she just plays a like news reporter i say have i talked about it before because i've seen it almost a dozen times and it's a movie that like i love just discussing because there's so much to unpack in it well it's a movie that bears repeated viewings because like it's it's more like a state it's more like a place that you visit because yeah. there's no plot to speak of and <laughs> but it does have this strange like uh kind of red tinted shot on video look to it and yeah. this kind of weird vibe and it's just kind of uncomfortable but at the same time hilarious yeah filled with crazy quotable lines hey is science crazed uh shot on video I believe it was shot on film, but that's okay. another Canadian motion picture that is like things with all the fun sucked out of it. And so it's like pure. Yeah. And like it's you, pure nothing. Yeah, yeah. It's like watching a black hole just swoosh by you for, I assume, about 80 minutes. You played uh, Science Crazed at um, th- this event last year, you and Peter Kapowski, this uh, laser blast like Canadian film day or something where it was a marathon of just... We called it endurance marathon. Yeah. You gave us money to come in, and if you stayed the entire time, you'd get your money back. But if you wanted to leave in the middle, you had to pay. So Science Crazed, like it was great being in the audience for Science Crazed because there's this 10-minute scene in the movie, it's just people exercising, and <laughs> It's exercising, then it cuts to the monster just walking, and then exercising, then walking, and exercising, walking, and it goes for 10 minutes. And you could see the audience, like, break down and, like, go insane, and then eventually embrace the purity of it. There was a man with his head in his hands, and he was just, like, staring at the ground. There was a shot of just a chest breathing, and it's like, yeah. (gasps) And you're like, they're going to cut, right? Yeah. Like, they have to cut. They cannot just hold on his chest yeah. for this long. Yeah. And that's just beauty. Like, that's like, art. There's no reason for it except that they needed to fill up time. Yeah. Exactly. There's no ideas here. And I think that that's something very fun to watch with the group of people, which is why I wanted to do a marathon like that. Like, I don't think I could make it through Science Craze by myself. Because when you have no agency, everything will distract you. Like, you put it off in the corner or something like that. But when you have to dedicate this time, and you're like, we're watching this, everybody put your phones down, put your laptops away, we are watching this movie. Yeah. So it turns into the... um, the hellish version of the satellite of love where you're just like ah, the entire time i just i I can't like when i think of shot on video movies though things is the one at the top even though it wasn't shot on video it was shot on film but it's just in that kind of stuff the video store shelves era Mm -hmm. that like that's why it's important to me wow the greatest shot on video film of all time uh jean-luc godard's histoire du cinema (laughs) A uh, big uh, a fan of that, Jess Franco. Oh, uh, he's a fan of Historic Cinema? Yeah, and Stephen Thrower's Murderous Passions. He talks about, he's quoted saying that, like, that is one of the most important pieces of art that have come out this year. Oh, that's interesting. Well, Jess Franco, towards the end of his career, experimented with shot on video stuff, which I haven't seen and probably sucks. But somebody like Godard, I mean, like, he's somebody who actually is kind of av- on the avant garde of whatever the medium is, no matter how shitty the medium looks, he finds what's beautiful looking about it. Yeah. Oh, man. How did this turn into a Godard talk after? <laughs> I think it's probably the only time. Because we're high and low here on the Important Cinema Club. You that know? things and Godard were both mentioned in the same sentence. I somehow doubt that. 